0: This is ASEN, the Association for the Study of Ethnicity and Nationalism. To find out more, visit ASON.ac.uk We'll kick off with uh, Professor Zubayda. Good, well thank you. Um, yes, the uh, The commentators on what's been dubbed the Arab Spring have expressed uh, surprise at the uh, absence um, of Islamic uh, politics, Islamic slogans, and so on, in the uh, insurrectionary or revolutionary movements, whatever you want to call them, um, in the various countries. Added to that also the um, uh, relative absence of... Uh, nationalist issues Uh, so in fact you know whereas the uh, politics uh, of the region especially oppositional politics of the region uh, since the uh, 1970s uh, and even before uh, you know the themes of uh, of nationalism of anti-imperialism of anti-american of the great problem of Israel Palestine all these have been Dominant uh, in what's been called the Arab street. Uh, in these recent movements, they have not been entirely absent, but they have not been highlighted. That in fact, the issues that have come out are much more uh, uh, general uh, issues of politics uh, to do uh, with uh, liberty, democracy, the end of corruption. The end of repression, uh, the uh, and jobs, uh, the economy, services, and so on. So, in fact, it is much more the uh, the politics of uh, actual issue of pragmatic issues against the rulers, against the uh, regimes that have been entrenched uh, in these countries uh, for several generations and had become uh, hereditary. Now. What I want to do here is to put in a kind of historical background uh, to all this, you know, seeing the focus of uh, uh, this uh, uh, association which we are speaking as and is on nationalism, I shall uh, look at moments in the uh, historical development of nationalism and how it relates to uh, these uh, events. Um, I think perhaps uh, if we start with the... uh, 19th century development of modernity of uh, uh, reforms in the Ottoman Empire in the Arab in Egypt and in uh, Iran and uh, the kind of ideologies and the nationalisms that were behind this one very important component of course uh, in reformism uh, was the emphasis on progress Um, indeed the uh, uh, Young Turks Association, so what we call the Young Turks, which made the uh, revolution in the Ottoman world and brought in the Constitution, uh, was called a Committee uh, of uh, Union and Progress, Atihad wa Tarafi. And so, but the whole idea of progress was very much tied up with what uh, Europe had achieved, Uh, first of all militarily, then in terms of uh, economic uh, uh, growth and superiority uh, of uh, political order, administration, uh, legal rationality, the emphasis on science and technology and rationality in all these fields. All these were the kind of objectives uh, of the intellectuals and statesmen uh, of the age of reform. Uh, in the uh, 19th and 20th uh, centuries. At the same time, of course, there was the nagging issue of authenticity. By doing all this, do we really want to be, uh, are we conceding that Europe is superior and that our history, our uh, religion, our culture uh, is somehow inferior? And then through this search for authenticity came the idea of renaissance, Nahva. So, it isn't that Europe is better than us. We were just as good as Europe, if not better, if we look at our history and the origins of, the, uh, of our uh, civilization and culture. It is just that these have been corrupted. So, in fact, what you have uh, is the uh, beginnings of uh, uh, Islam, for instance, and the, uh, uh, which has the pure Islam of the Prophet and the early days, had all the features that are desirable. It emphasized knowledge and science and uh, rationality. It contained an egalitarian, if not a democratic uh, ethos, uh, in terms of political organization and leadership. It contained social justice. Uh, It had the rule of law. And so all these aspects were there. Uh, Also, of course, if you look at the uh, political history of the Uh, Arab and Muslim empires and uh, including the early days of the Ottomans and all the great uh, achievements uh, of these empires in terms of uh, territory and the brilliance of civilization uh, of science and literature and the arts uh, and everything else. So, in fact, all these were there in the history, but they had been uh, uh, subject to decadence and this decadence was due to all kinds of factors that I'm not going into now, uh, but that in fact what you need now is a renaissance. So, in fact, this, uh, what appeared like um, a kind of modernity imitation of Europe, was in fact a renaissance of what was there uh, in the essence uh, of our own uh, civilizations, our own cultures, and so on. So, this question of authenticity then. At that point in time and into the 20th century, uh, authenticity and progress were identified in the concept of Renaissance. Now, at the same time as the development uh, of these uh, ideas uh, of progress uh, embodied in the reforms by the intellectuals and the statesmen, you had another form of nationalism developing at the popular level what you might call a communalist nationalism here were in the uh, ottoman world and to lesser extent in iran the coexistence of a number of different communities of uh, especially religious uh, communities of uh, you know the dominant muslim sunni uh, uh, people uh, side by side in many areas uh, with christians of different kinds with uh, jewish communities and so on um, and the relationships between them of course varied time and place and crises and wars and peace and what-have-you so in fact it was highly uh, they were def always social boundaries now and again the social boundaries would be politicized uh, and now and again they become violent conflict and the intrusion uh, of Europe of capitalism uh, of the uh, enormous Uh, economic and social transformation that occurred in the countryside and the provincial cities and the role of the European interference uh, in uh, these transformations. And uh, this of course led to uh, winners and losers. Uh, You know there were, of course many uh, winners who gained from modernity, from the development of education, the reform of law, uh, the development of transport and communication, uh, the opening up of markets for enterprise, uh, and indeed uh, in the relationship with the uh, uh, economic uh, and political elements of the dominant European powers, and the uh, the non-Muslim communities uh, or at least the non-Muslim individuals, especially of the cities and the elites, benefited from this in that they acted as uh, functionaries and agents both in the government and for the uh, foreign companies and consulates and what have you and they gained all kinds of concessions. This led, of course, many of the losers were the ordinary people and especially in the countryside. So this led to great uh, hardships and resentments and the resentments were directed against the, uh, both the European powers and what was seen as the extension of the European powers, the local non-Muslims, and led to many uh, violent events in Syria, Lebanon, in Anatolia, and in uh, various places. Now, uh, this kind of nationalism is uh, what I call communalist nationalism. It is a kind of view of international relations as an extension of the communalist relations that they are. So in fact, the Europeans are an extension of the, of the Christians uh, uh, of that are known to them, so they are one with the Christians. So, in fact, the confrontation is then seen not in terms of just imperialism, but imperialism as uh, having, uh, as being, uh, as being Christian. This, of course, was to be repeated in relation to the Jews and Israel uh, at a later time, the Jews being seen as an extension of Israel. So while you have the intellectual uh, and you know high, what Gellner called uh, uh, high culture nationalism uh, of uh, progress, uh, you have the popular populist nationalism, which is phrased in religious and communalist terms. These people were not necessarily religious in being pious, but they saw religion as what we call an ethnic marker of being uh, what distinguished peoples. Now, um, this is one phase. The other phase, and I have to um, go through it quickly, uh, is uh, in the course of the 20th century uh, under colonial uh, and mandate regimes and also under uh, sort of neo-colonial regimes, you know, in places like Egypt and uh, Iraq after the uh, British and then the French mandates in Syria Lebanon uh, when they ended in fact the regimes that followed them were uh, strongly uh, client regimes of these uh, former uh, colonial powers uh, and in these situ- under these uh, circumstances there was uh, a degree of openness and plurality uh, in politics and you had uh, a a number of different uh, movements, uh, ideologies, parties, many of them aiming for uh, complete independence, full national independence, but with different ideologies, of which the Islamists were one. So the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt was one such uh, political group uh, you had in development in the 1930s, Uh, the uh, uh, movements that were that admired uh, Mussolini and Hitler and formed similar uh, movements which were also uh, Mussolini and Hitler being against the British uh, was a convenient kind of uh, connection Uh, uh, and most of all of course you had the development of both liberal and leftist uh, nationalist uh, movements. These all culminated uh, in prominently in the case of Egypt and then again Iraq and Syria and Algeria in military coup d'etats that brought in uh, nationalist, uh, often pan-Arab nationalist uh, military juntas into rule. Some of them were popular like uh, Abdel Nasser in in Egypt and Nasserism became a creed and had very important uh, echoes worldwide because it became part of the resurgence of what's called uh, the the Third World and Third Worldist uh, uh, movements. Uh, They established uh, uh, forms of statist uh, economies and statist controls, which uh, banned uh, further political activity uh, and which sported socialist rhetoric, Arab (coughs) socialism, and which were at the same time uh, uh, patronized by the Soviet Union in the context of the Cold War. So the Soviet model, as it were, of economy, society, the single-party state, were very influential in Nazarism, in Ba'athism, in the FLN, in, in, in Algeria. This is, was a distinct form of nationalism, which was at the same time had universalist components, in that uh, it was it saw itself as part of uh, the kind of liberationist, independentist movements in the uh, Third World against imperialism, pursuing socialism, all these were kind of universalist values which were tied with the particularistic uh, nationalism. During this period the religious nationalism, the religious elements, fell to the background. Of course in Egypt uh, the Muslim Brotherhood and its offshoots never disappeared, uh, but they were uh, firmly subordinated, and indeed the, the most important elements uh, of opposition in many of the Arab countries at that time were leftist uh, rather than uh, Islamist. Then you have uh, the... Uh, and this uh, these movements included the popular and populist nationalism because in actual fact, uh, Nasserism uh, uh, depended on mass mobilization and mass so in fact then the uh, the nationalism of the populace then merged uh, with that of the regime but of course then these regimes failed these regimes did not deliver on so many issues and of course the military defeats against israel uh, then the uh, decline of the soviet union uh, and uh, the collapse of communism and the soviet model led throughout the world into <coughs> resurgences of nationalism. You know, you see in Eastern Europe and the Balkans, and in the uh, Middle East part of that uh, uh, development with the failure of uh, the kind of socialist ideologies and the uh, Soviet Union. The, in a sense, at that period, the uh, nationalism was articulated uh, to uh, as one kind or another of socialism and but that articulation then failed and in fact what emerged was especially after the Iranian Revolution of 1979 was the uh, development of much more nativistic uh, nationalism one that was uh, imbued with religion and uh, religious uh, uh, objectives and uh, at the same time one in which nationalism then became articulated Into Islamism. Islamism is not of course one thing, it it is uh, like like Marxism was before it, it's an idiom in terms of which so many different kinds of ideologies and aspirations uh, can be expressed and they were expressed for a long time, uh, became a dominant idiom in many uh, of the countries of the region and of course only declined in popularity uh, in the country of the first uh, Islamic Republic uh, in Iran whereas somewhere like egypt it became uh, ever more dominant as uh, forms of uh, social uh, uh, oppositional discourse and of course one very important uh, development in this respect was that the regimes themselves the especially the regimes after the decline of the of the socialist idea uh, Sadat in egypt uh, the way in which Saddam Hussein and baptism developed in Iraq and so on uh, these were increasingly inclined to borrow legitimacy from this dominant Islamic discourse by reaching accommodation uh, with the conservative uh, Muslim forces using Muslim slogans uh, but at the same time severely repressing any Islamic oppositional movement and that certainly was the case. Uh, in Egypt, in which uh, there was uh, uh, general accommodation between conservative Wahhabi celib <coughs> Islamism on the one side and the regime on the other, uh, but only the only uh, Islamic uh, elements that were then suppressed by the regime were these that became politically oppositional now uh, So we come then to one other component that developed at that time in preparation for the Iranian revolution. We go back to the notion of authenticity. One very interesting thing happened in terms of intellectual and ideological development was that uh, not only in the region, but throughout the world, in the West indeed, uh, there were new themes developing in oppositional and what had been socialist politics, um, the idea uh, that uh, the, the, the denunciation of capitalism, not just on the old sort of Marxist and socialist lines, which is that uh, capitalism exploits workers, brings about crises, and so on, but in cultural and psychological terms. So, in fact, that was something that started, let's say, or at least one of its starting points, were a uh, critical theory in, uh, developed in Germany, the Frankfurt School, Adorno, Horkheimer, and so on, of looking at capitalism in terms of psychological repression, uh, in terms of uh, uh, the way in which it colonizes the life world uh, of people through consumerism, uh, through uh, the, uh, the media, uh, through various kinds of uh, repressing uh, any kind of uh, uh, consciousness uh, of the exploitation of capitalism. Another element of this idea was then, the in r- specifically in relation to the Third World, were the notions that developed from Sartre and, from, uh, and Fanon, uh, the idea of the wretched of the earth, that in fact is, they look at imperialism as being Uh, not only uh, exploitative and uh, repressive and suppressive uh, of people throughout the world, but in fact about cultural imperialism, psychological imperialism, the way in which imperialism then uh, colonizes uh, uh, the psyche and the culture uh, of the people that it dominates. This was taken up uh, uh, very prominently in Iran, but also in other places. So, in fact, uh, the kind of uh, Islamic ideologies of uh, Ali Shariati in Iran, of Jalal Ali Ahmad, also in Iran, uh, concentrated on these aspects uh, of imperialism and of capitalism. Uh, Shariati, and of course, uh, uh, gender and sexuality were very important elements in this. So, Shariati, for instance, wrote one of his... Uh, Uh, small books was called Fatima is Fatima, which is upholding the example of the uh, Prophet's daughter and uh, the Imam Ali's wife uh, Fatima as an example of womanhood, uh, of being uh, uh, not only caring for her uh, kin and her uh, children, but also being politically committed in the fight against oppression, uh, in uh, being the mother of the martyrs, and so on. And contrasting this uh, image of Fatima uh, with the kind of modern woman that uh, capitalism and imperialist culture is creating. Frivolous, uh, uh, dedicated to consumption, uh, to fashion, to makeup, becoming a sexual plaything, uh, that all this was a way uh, not only uh, of oppressing women, but also of uh, subverting the culture, emptying out the culture of its uh, uh, elements. So, in fact, this becomes a kind of tool of capitalism and imperialism against the uh, dominated people. And so part of the revolution then is to reject uh, this uh, cultural uh, invasion. Uh, Now, this was taken up uh, the success of the Iranian Revolution uh, was then uh, clearly seen by many of the Arab intellectuals, especially in Egypt, as, as who were previously uh, leftists, Marxists. People like Taruk uh, al-Bishri, who continues to be an important uh, uh, figure in uh, the public life in Egypt, people like Adel uh, Hussein, who died a few years ago and was also a prominent uh, leftist writer and journalist. They saw. Uh, the Iranian Revolution as an indication that in fact you know all they've been fighting for all their lives uh, was uh, for um, uh, to to give consciousness to the people to rise against uh, capitalism, against imperialism, uh, national unity and so on and it seemed that you can only you can do that with, with Islam. So in fact many of these people while not really changing their ideas about what needs to be done and their program switched from Marxism uh, to Islam. Uh, Bishri is much more complicated in this respect and continues to be uh, to uh, the present day. So, in fact, then, um, this uh, notion uh, of authenticity and the whereas authenticity for the previous generation was then identified with progress And with European style uh, progress in the name of the uh, cultural heritage and the religious heritage of the Arab people. This uh, new search for authenticity was based on a rejection of the West but a rejection of the West in terms of the Western opposition of the uh, kind of themes that emerged in the 1960s and 70s in the West. Uh, the development from Marxism and psychoanalysis uh, in, in uh, these respects. Now, um, for so long uh, uh, in the uh, later decades of the 20th century and into the 21st century these kinds of ideas um, uh, became popular. That in many respects, internally... What does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, excuse me. I didn't switch off. I didn't switch off. I'll switch off now. Good. Um. Sorry about that. Um. Then. Yes, Where was I? So. Uh, so many of these ideas. Uh, uh, continued to develop and sort of violent jihadist Islamism which uh, was prominent in Egypt and elsewhere until the 1990s was defeated by a combination of uh, uh, repression and unpopularity and uh, became concentrated much more in the uh, wilder territories of uh, Afghanistan, Yemen um, Hamburg and London and New York and uh, so in fact then um, the the strand of Islamism that continued to be very important uh, were much more conservative Islamism and Salafism and as I already indicated the regimes were quite comfortable with that and in fact had a symbiotic relationship with it and that perhaps is one of the reasons (coughs) why the uh, recent uh, developments which were Uh, there let me just say the recent developments are uh, have to be looked at sociologically in terms as people have been looking at them sociologically in terms of uh, generations and in terms of class uh, the the development and the self-consciousness of a new generation of the poor middle class and the young poor uh, middle class uh, for whom uh, then uh, the uh, conditions of life were much more important than ideologies of uh, Islam and nationalism, uh, for whom the issues of uh, of jobs, uh, of services, of freedom, uh, of uh, uh, the uh, personal development were uh, foremost and important. And part of this generation also, which uh, uh, should be emphasized, is the kind of cultural creativity that goes with it, that so much of the uh, events and the movements uh, in all these is accompanied by uh, music, uh, poetry, uh, new forms of literature, uh, cinema, all aided by the uh, modern uh, uh, media, by the, uh, what's being called the social media, the electronic media, about which I know very little. I won't say very much about that. So uh, then, uh, then um, uh, you you also um, have the uh, the development of um, um, the sort of international networks that you get uh, through this, and uh, much greater. Uh, and the it is these particularly cultural elements uh, that are, for for example, uh, suppressed by the Iranian regime and controlled by the Iranian regime. They are the ones that are uh, censored and attacked by the Salafist Muslims. Uh, So, in all these respects, while not rejecting religion, uh, many of the kind of spokespersons uh, for these uh, uh, new developments have sidelined religion. Now, let me conclude by saying that uh, a a kind of dark element (coughs) is that if we look at the history of revolutions, um, the people who make the revolutions are never the ones that run them subsequently, always somebody else who takes over. So, in fact, we don't know what is lurking. The old regimes and the elements of the old regime, certainly in Egypt, the army, uh, the old crony capitalists. Uh, you know, they are there, they're not, they haven't been removed, it's only a, a small number of the old regime have been removed. The Islamists are there, the Islamists are divided. Uh, the uh, the last uh, thing I heard was that the Muslim Brotherhood have now started their own football team uh, and uh, which is which is a very good sign uh, and that in fact they are being attacked on that issue as many others by the Salafists who People also seem to think are uh, <coughs> very prominent in, uh, in uh, Egypt at, at the moment. Now, there is no, I would don't have any way of assessing how important Salaf, Salafists are, how important the Muslim Brothers are. The Muslim Brothers are certainly very well organized. The Salafists certainly have very important popular bases, especially in Upper Egypt. What uh, this mixture <coughs> would come up to, and with the army in control, we we. I wouldn't, who would like to guess. I don't know. Maybe my friends here will. Okay, well, with that, I'll uh, conclude. Thank you.
1: Excellent. Thank you, Professor Sivella. Thank you. We'll hand over now to uh, Professor Tripp. Uh, we'll also have some time at the end of the free speeches for questions, so please hang around uh, if you have any questions.
2: Yeah, I think I'll uh, stand up. It's not because I... I'm sorry indulge in oratory or put myself up for a statue, but it's uh, it's easy to see the audience um, and to get some sense of that. I must say that I won't be giving as magisterial a view as Sammy, but I think he provided an excellent uh, background to some of the things that I want to say. What I want to look at really was thinking about uh, recent events in the light of the theme of these seminars of nationalism um, is thinking about the (coughs) re-emergence of the public and the nation and Uh, rather than looking back historically, just get a sense of what that's meant in terms of recent events. Because two things struck me, I think, well, more than two things, but certainly two things struck me uh, watching what had been happening in Egypt, Tunisia, but also in Libya (coughs) and Syria, Bahrain and elsewhere, uh, is the attempt both strategically and symbolically to reclaim public space. In other words, uh, a notion of a restatement of what the public was about. Leading very quickly, uh, and I would say understandably uh, and logically, uh, into an attempt to uh, define treachery uh, to the nation uh, and loyalty to the nation. So, in a sense, what became public manifestations also became uh, a way of engaging with a discourse on whether you betray or whether you're loyal to the nation, different conceptions of the nation, uh, and in a sense, largely driven by uh, a contest over what it is to reclaim public space, what it is to, as it were, um, dominate uh, public space and I, I want to just say a few things about that, I suppose, in terms of how that manifests itself i mean I think the the first thing to think about uh, public space what seems extraordinarily interesting, and certainly once i had a chance of seeing it on the TV and elsewhere, is both the material manifestation of the public space and as it were, it's symbolic resonance so in a sense one could argue that one of the distinguishing features of much that one's seen in the last few months has been the physical position as it were the physical positioning of bodies in the public sphere in the public space it's not an imaginative area but it has imaginative resonance but it is this notion of occupying or reoccupying uh, a public space and I, I think that one of the uh, interesting things to think about therefore is physical space. How is that actually been reclaimed and how has that shaped the kinds of events that we've seen happening both in terms of the strategies of people involved in it but also uh, some of the consequences as well. And when I talks about public space in this sense one's talking very uh, obviously uh, and practically always in an urban setting of the reclamation of the public square, the public street, uh, the the, uh, the public space understood. And what's interesting about that is that in many senses, a determined effort by people across different parts of the Middle East uh, to transform these sites uh, into something that genuinely belongs to the public. When one thinks about only back in December, as it were, uh, uh, of last year, what most of these so-called public spaces actually were, uh, somebody quite aptly uh, um, portrayed them as... Uh, the parade grounds of the regime. In other words, they're the places where you enforced conformity, where you enforced ritual humiliation uh, on uh, the subject peoples uh, within the, uh, the state itself. Uh, it's the place uh, in which you made sure that surveillance uh, was uh, very much to the fore, and of course the place in which you put up l- large portraits of yourself and your cronies to ensure that people re- remembered who was boss uh, in uh, one form or another. So, in a sense, Public space had been not simply all the other resources of, of the of the state uh, and of the community, but had been uh, taken over by the by the regime in all sorts of ways. Uh, it had become a site for discipline, um, and uh, in many senses, what's interesting about the um, the events recently is the ways in which they become turned on their head to be, as it were, a site for mobilizing a protesting public. In other words, it becomes a different kind of site. There's a famous. Uh, graffiti uh, that came up actually during the events of 1968 in Paris when uh, one of the features of the urban protest in uh, the events of 1968 uh, was the use made of the wide avenues and boulevards of uh, Paris itself uh, by uh, the people who were demonstrating and rioting uh, effectively defeating uh, the uh, attempts by the riot police to control them, but of course the irony was historically those boulevards had been built by uh, the 19th century French government to use grapeshot shot uh, to mow down the, the, the masses. Uh, and there was a wonderful graffiti which was painted up on the wall. I'm saying it in English, but of course it was in French. Which was um, "Too bad, Baron Haussmann, who was the person who was the architect of these wide avenues of fire." game set and match to the rabble. In other words, game set and match to the canai. The, the, the people, in other words, that were going to be the victims now became, of course, the masters of the public space. And in some ways, one's seen an evidence of that uh, in parts of the, the Middle East as well. So you have that physical occupation of space, very obviously done in Tahrir and elsewhere, but in, in Tunis uh, and other places as well. You see the reclamation of public space in terms of what, the, what surfaces in the public space become. The walls with graffiti, with slogans, with posters. Uh, with, in a sense, the very anti-messages, as it were, of uh, power itself. The defacement of the faces of the powerful uh, became one of the uh, most uh, uh, visible aspects. And I think the ingenuity of the demonstrators in Dera, in Syria, to manage to burn a bronze statue of Hafez al-Assad showed the determination of the public when they get their anger up. So I think that there's that sense of reclaiming it. In other words, what was... A site of discipline, a site of slogans, a site of domination becomes exactly the opposite. It gets turned into the opposite as well. One could also refer to what Sammy referred to before as well, which is a new kind of public space, the public space of the internet and the new media, reclaiming that as against the uh, uh, monotonous sound of uh, the state broadcasting apparatus of the television uh, and so on. The subversion of that and the inability of... Uh, regimes to master that particular part of the public space. What was also interesting if you looked at the pattern of demonstration and the occupation of public space from Egypt, Tunisia uh, in fact in Libya at the beginning before it became a civil war and uh, in, uh, in Syria and Bahrain as well was how the public spaces occupied weren't just random streets and squares they were squares often in front of the buildings that should have belonged to the public but had been purloined By someone else altogether. Demonstrations in front of parliaments, in front of party buildings, in front of uh, broadcasting stations, in front of, in other words, a whole array of uh, public buildings in theory that had been taken by the regime, taken by the non public, uh, by the private, as it were, uh, in that sense as well. And of course, Uh, As one saw in Egypt, it meant demonstrating in front of courts, in front of the press association, uh, in areas, in a sense, that demonstrated the the attempt by the public to reclaim it. Of course, uh, it also meant the destruction, the torching of the nominally public buildings, uh, the headquarters of the NDP uh, in Egypt, the headquarters of the Ba'ath in Dera and elsewhere, uh, the governor's offices, the uh, state broadcasting um, uh, uh, outfits, um, rather plaintively, in a very bad-tempered interview on the radio recently, uh, the, um, a representative of the Syrian State Broadcasting um, uh, 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 Company, uh, or association, organization, was trying to remonstrate with the presenter who was interviewing her. Uh, to say, and trying to prove how nasty the demonstrators were in Syria and where they were really armed gangs of terrorists. And he said, they even went as far as to burn down the television station in Dera. And, of course, when you heard her performance, uh, you knew exactly why they would yeah. burned <laughs> it down. Uh, in Syria, uh, they burned it down. In Egypt, what was interesting, one of the key moments in the, um, the post, uh, uh, well, at least the post phony resignation of Hosni Mubarak, uh, was the fact that this, uh the, the people then surrounded the state broadcasting apparatus so they couldn't actually go on broadcasting any of the messages they did they didn't actually burn it but they just surrounded they laid siege to it so in a sense a very strong notion what I'm arguing here is of the physical public space people have lived with this and they knew it had been taken from them so in a sense it was that reclaiming of it and of course the ferocious fights to ensure that that was uh, that was uh, um, uh, reclaimed by the Uh, by the the forces of of the authorities uh, particularly in Bahrain and in um, uh, Syria and of course to some extent in uh, Libya as well. So there was this sort of notion of the the importance of the physical occupation of public space but also of course the huge symbolic power uh, of uh, reasserting uh, a reclamation as it were of uh, public space itself and the symbolic power of course is quite obvious from simply an in many senses, presenting tens of thousands of people on the street, you suddenly say that you are the public. That, in a sense, what the government had once claimed Mm -hmm. uh, was no longer the case. That uh, if they claimed to speak for the public, they couldn't speak for them anymore. So, in a sense, it challenges it on two levels. One, it challenges it in terms of government control. So, in a sense, the very defiance of people out in the public spaces against the curfews, against the orders of the government, becomes, as it were, a a, a way of underlining the... uh, Uh, Incapacity of the government a government already on the skids and to some extent that was very much the case in Iran uh, In 78 (coughs) and uh, one could argue it's been the case here as well Um, It also quite interestingly uh, In many senses reverses the message of contempt uh, What the Algerians call hugra uh, of the way in which uh, government treats? individuals and subjects with complete contempt uh, and uh, the there's a very somebody sent me a quite an interesting uh, video of um, set to heroic music of the Egyptian Revolution, as it was called. But what was interesting was that the whole first five or ten minutes of the video is taken up with random uh, pieces of film filmed from I don't know how long ago or where of Egyptians basically being slapped and kicked in the street by different policemen, different kinds of policemen, different kinds of agents of one form or another. In other words, uh, a strong notion that. The whole point about the public street was that it was the place for the humiliation, for the rubbing in your, your, your noses in the humiliation to the regime. And now it gets reversed. It gets reversed as the place where you humiliate uh, the government because you suddenly said that you can stand up and you've shown that you can stand up and the government can't do anything about it. So in that sense, therefore, it becomes a, a key part of the game as well. And finally, symbolically, it's important because it becomes a place in which you represent the people. So in a sense, the notion, and one's seen it a lot in terms of coverage of the uh, demonstrations in different places, the notion that there is a a representative uh, sample of much of the people, not just from one age group, not just from one gender group, not just from one uh, ethnic group or religious group, but in a sense a notion that this is the people Manifested. But obviously, it's represented, but not uh, not uh, uh, literally so. So a very strong message going forward that, in a sense, we represent the people. I don't know about those people in the palaces or uh, in the barracks, but we are uh, the people. In that sense, it's quite reminiscent in um, uh, Germany, in East Germany in 1989, when there were famous, uh, what they called the Monday Demonstrators, who used to just simply... In, in Bravely, in East Germany in 1989, before anyone knew how it would actually unravel, uh, who stood and chanted the slogan, Wir sind das Volk, we are the people. So, in a sense, in the so called People's Republic, they wanted to emphasize that actually we are the people now. And so, in a sense, that idea has been very similar in, uh, in Egypt, Tunisia, Bahrain, and elsewhere, a notion of uh, a different emerging uh, political public. So, in that sense, reclaiming the public space, reclaiming it physically, reclaiming it symbolically has been a key part, I think, of the way in which the uh, uprisings have been organized strategically, but in a sense in terms of the message that they're trying to give as well. That leads me to the second part, which is how that becomes very quickly and uh, very significantly in some senses um, an expression of loyalty or indeed treachery to the nation. So in a sense, it's the notion of Once you begin to define the public, you begin to define the political public, you begin to define the political community, and to some extent, it begins to shape ideas of the nation itself. And that comes out quite uh, interestingly and clearly in a number of anecdotes that come out, and also the slogans that come out of um, some of the recent uh, experiences. One of the things that was quite poignant listening to uh, some of the Egyptians who'd been in Tahrir Square and who who felt quite understandably that as the media, the international media, was portraying the army as being a kind of neutral force, they wondered why they were being uh, beaten up and dragged off by army officers to be interrogated behind the Egyptian National Museum uh, at the very time when everyone was saying the army's wonderful, it's standing there uh, neutrally. And one of the things that that came out of their testimonies was how when they were being interrogated, apart from, say, who's organizing you, who's paying you, and all the usual things, is being accused of treachery. That they were the traitors to the nation, and it was what's interesting and, and poignant about it is the complete bafflement of these people who were hauled in. They knew that people they'd be beaten up, they'd be accused of being agents, but the notion that they were the ones being accused of treachery. Uh, and so, in a sense, uh, it's exactly the same uh, uh, you've heard in Bahrain uh, that anybody who demonstrates the government must be uh, a traitor to Bahrain itself. Uh, and uh, serving uh, the Iranian government. The Syrian government has done the same thing, uh, of course to say that anybody who is demonstrating is a traitor and a falafi and so on. So, in other words, the use of the notion of to assert yourself as part of a political public is an act of treachery. But, of course, that also has been turned on its head. And what's interesting in uh, many ways is how that has been reversed. For instance, in Egypt, with now calls to indict uh, Mubarak not just on charges of corruption and brutality but of high treason uh, and equally of course how the slogans uh, in Syria change from in the early days a rather kind of um, uh, uh, cynical but but funny slogan of your time's up doctor uh, because of course you know he's a doctor uh ophthalmologist and so on to now uh, a much uh, uh, more extreme slogan which is Bashar the butcher the traitor In other words, the notion that he is the one who's betrayed uh, the nation, not the people who are demonstrating against him. The same in Egypt. And it can't help but remind anybody who knows about English history to remember that um, King Charles I was tried and executed uh, against the charge of high treason against the English people. So in a sense, the notion that it's not the people who rise up who are the traitors, it gets turned uh, on its head in one way or another. So in that sense, therefore, uh, the charge of treason uh, is very much linked to a notion of uh, the understanding of the nation. But the other aspect of this is what I call performing the nation. How in a sense the nation has being performed in much of the uprisings that one's seen uh, in one form or another. In other words the uh, you see very obviously in what you might call the theater of Tahrir uh, the, the performance of public unity. Uh, public unity between all kinds, between men and women, between Uh, left and right, between uh, religious and secular, between Christian uh, and Muslim. The um, uh, famous uh, shots being taken of Muslims guarding Christians at mass and and, uh, uh, Christians guarding Muslims uh, during the prayer times. And the slogans of um, Sheikh and priest both want to see the back of uh, Mubarak and so on. And one's seen that, to some extent, the same kind of performances in... Uh, in Syria, as well, uh, the, the slogan of uh, one, one, Syrians are one, which becomes uh, a, a repeated chant, in a sense, has been part of that performing of the nation, the notion that this is a community. But, of course, there have been darker aspects uh, to this, as well. Uh, one of the slogans that uh, has also uh, uh, been heard in Syria, which is the, um, uh, which comes out better in Arabic, which is, Alois to the coffins, Christians to Beirut. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, it was the, the notion that uh, Alois, which of course the, uh, the sect of uh, most of the ruling uh, caste in, in, uh, in, um, uh, in Syria. So in a sense, defining the nation isn't always necessarily going to lead to one, one, all uh, are one. But obviously has also led to notions of what kind of nation is it, what kind of definition. Uh, and in that sense, Christian uh, and Muslim may become part of it. And one's seen that in Egypt as well. Uh, with things that had very local causes have now given people uh, a certain uh, degree of, uh, of pause and pause for concern so those are two aspects of these uprisings that I find really interesting in terms of the reclaiming of public space and what that means and then in a sense in the language of nationalism what it means to represent yourself as part of the public what kind of nation and I think that that leaves on with exactly as Sammy said uh, finally uh, some of the challenges of how do you institutionalize this? In other words, you can reclaim public space as a physical moment. You can occupy Tahrir Square. Uh, You can defy the government. You can, in a sense, uh, demonstrate, if you get away with it, uh, and the government doesn't uh, uh, massacre you, uh, you can uh, do much of that. But the question is, how do you institutionalize it? And I don't know whether Nadim will say, but certainly I spoke to people who had been in the famous um, occupation of Place des Martyrs in Beirut in 2005. A time when as many of the people who were on the square said they met people from parts of Lebanon they'd never known before they felt there was a, a sense of Lebanese unity and uh, Lebanese solidarity uh, and then they said in a rather cynical way and of course when we achieved our goal which was the downfall of the government they called new elections and we all had to go off to our constituencies to vote so we were in a sense we were nobbled by the same old system what seemed like if you like a moment of enthusiasm and unity on the uh, Place des Martyrs became, in a sense, fitting back into the same old system. Uh, and to some extent, in certainly in Egypt and Tunisia, one can't say yet about Syria or uh, Bahrain or Libya, but certainly in Egypt and Tunisia, there are clearly those concerns. The first is obviously whether the public, the notion of the public as an idea and as a manifestation, doesn't fragment, as it's bound to do. So in a sense, different notions of uh, uh, of what's important here. The second is whether the impetus to maintain public occupation of mass occupation of public space can ever be maintained. And again, what's seen in Egypt, and to some extent Tunisia as well, uh, is uh, the diminishing enthusiasm of that. And of course, the ruthlessness of the authorities in making sure that uh, it doesn't uh, take off in any obvious way. But finally, and probably most importantly, is thinking about how do you institutionalize public power when the public institutions are already staffed by people who are long, as Sami said, practiced in manipulating them. The military, the economic elites, the bureaucratic apparatus. They're the ones who are within the public institutions. So if you reclaim the public institutions, even if you seek to make them more accountable, the problem is that that public, that moment of enthusiasm cannot easily be Uh, easily be um, uh, recreated and I suppose to to finish on uh, about a week ago there was uh, a uh, conference um, uh, called or a congress if you like called by the actually by the Egyptian government called the first conference of Egypt Uh, the it was called the people defend the revolution and it was attended by some three or four thousand people Um, huge attendance uh, with practically all spectrum of opinion uh, um, uh, represented there and of course it was an attempt to in some senses give a voice to what had seemed like the uh, solidarities of Tahrir and elsewhere to try not only give it a voice but give a shape to how does one imagine uh, the future of, of Egypt as well the Muslim Brotherhood boycotted uh, the uh, the meeting but many Muslim brothers turned up and two interesting Um, uh, events took place. It struck me as interesting, as in a sense the public begins to define the nation. One was that a woman who had been, who wasn't a Muslim brother, but she's very close to the Islamic trend, uh, stood up to say that the only legitimate basis of law in Egypt must be the Sharia. And she was booed. And that's quite interesting. She wasn't booed by the whole thing but it it provoked a huge Dausha, as they say a huge discussion within that is a notion of people who thought that that was absolutely the wrong way to go so in a sense you can see that's one way in which I think Sammy has talked about before the way in which uh, a a view about the law what is to be the public law the basis of the public law uh, is going to be a key question but the second thing that uh, achieved both boos and cheers was when somebody stood up to say they must re-nationalize the privatized industries of Egypt. They must reverse the whole marketization, economic restructuring of, uh, uh, of the Egyptian political economy. And that also was booed by some and cheered by others. So what one could say there that, again, if you're redefining the public to in terms define the interests of the nation, is it to be a class divided public? Is it to be a class divided nation? So, in a sense, we have both questions of class and religion, which inevitably will come up in terms of the, uh, uh, the definition of the nation that comes out of a notion of public debate. Excellent. Thanks a lot, Charles. Thank you. Mm-hmm.
1: So, there's a very interesting food for thought there. We'll, we'll pass off to our final speaker, yes.
3: uh, Nadeem Shahadi. Mm-hmm. There's probably too much food for thought, I feel. But maybe we should just <laughs> discuss the. Uh, um you need
0: a drink now. <laughs> I need a drink. Now, exactly. <laughs> you can do a trick. Um,
3: I can do my trick. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was brought in for light entertainment. After, <laughs> after, after <laughs> after this. But uh, I'm going to build on 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 what what was what, what said. I mean, what, what I what what I thought was most interesting from from. Uh, Sami's presentation was the way the way ideas are associated with political change so 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 before the collapse of the Ottoman Empire the idea of the Ottoman Empire had collapsed long before it it physically fell so so the, the change from within the emulation of the West and, and all that was what was was happening and 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 in in a sense uh you know the LSE is a pro, is a product of such a process it's a product of um, the movement of through through shocks you know you have a shock the the shock changes ideas and then you have institutional and uh, manifestations of it and symbolic manifestations of it in in, in uh, uh, I mean, the the LSE is probably a a uh, result of the shock waves from the fall of Paris in 1870, where people in on this island started thinking that maybe the uh, Homo Britannicus, who was educated in classics and knew some Greek and Latin and could could make some nice drawings and all that was, had failed in. Uh, in, in front of Bismarck in front of the uh, the the uh, uh, her doctor type who is uh, precise scientific and organized and regimented and all that so so th- this is why you have uh, 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 compulsory conscription was was introduced uh, science became eugenics science uh, science was the buzzword this is the London School of Economics and Political Science and it was created by people who were Germanophiles at the time who were uh, part of a group who looked towards Germany and so was the, the so, so this is what I'm, uh, <coughs> what I'm going to, to try and interpret the, the revolution that's happening now as what is the impetus that changed ideas that caused the collapse of these systems, in that, and in a, in a, in, a, in a sense, you could follow it through uh, the 20th century. Uh, the shock of the fall of the Ottoman Empire caused liberal uh, ideas to spread throughout the region. Sort of different variations of Atatürk were 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 in Cairo, in in um, <coughs> uh, Damascus, in Baghdad, in Tehran, and. Uh, and, and, and all that they were they were building opera houses they were trying to to become West Western and and, and at the same time and the shock of the creation of uh, the, the shock of the failure of these systems in 1948 also manifests itself uh, 15 years later you will see that uh, the Nasser model uh, was pre, pre, prevails. the 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 uh, men in, in uh, uniform, colonels who had come to power to overthrow the lackeys of imperialism who had failed in 1948. And the legend is that uh, Abdel Nasser thought of this when he was withdrawing from Fallujah n- near, near Gaza, that, that what had failed wa- it was not a victory for the Zionists, it was a failure of these corrupt regimes. That were pro-Western, so, so he the, he the, the society he developed, the Arab nationalist uh, socialist, or there was an antithesis of it, or, or, and uh, after the shock of '67, you also see, 15, 20 years later, uh, uh, the rise of gentlemen with beards and with uh, turbans. Uh, the 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 pictures you have of. The Iranian Revolution of the Mujahideen of Hezbollah of uh, all these uh, of Isl- uh, the 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 iconic picture of the Muslim brother who 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 assassinated Anwar Sadat in '81. So so the shock provokes change, but it takes time and it's different in every place. But the idea sort of fell, and and uh, the consequences are a combination of. Uh, manifested. Uh, I mean, it was brilliant the way the way uh, Charles presented it because all these symbols are directed against that idea that fell in, in a sense. Mm. The, the, so so uh, so, uh, and I've noticed amongst my friends and, and colleagues that a lot of us, uh, I'm included in, that. Uh, because it, this is so new. It's now <laughs> in progress and we're all confused and nobody predicted it um, we try and find in it a vindication of our of our own of what we believed before so so, <laughs> so we saw I mean you've seen people writing that this is a proof that Arab nationalism exists that, that there's a connection through culture, through language, through religion and that what happens in one happens in all the rest you, you've seen that this uh, uh, a very good article actually but which is very well argued that this is a revolt against neoliberalism. <laughs> by and that uh, this is a revolt against the puppets of the United States, that this is uh, uh, Islam. I mean, the Iranians saw it as, as uh, the spread of Islam in, in, in the region. Some people saw it as the vindication of George Bush. And, um, and I, I, I think there is truth in all of these, but I would like to to say that that the idea of these dictatorships collapsed with the fall of the statue of Saddam Hussein that that the the fall of the statue of Saddam Hussein demystified uh, those very powerful uh, regimes that controlled all your life where even if you're five thousand miles away you can't think you can't joke you can't trust your friends you can't uh, it, it, it it was so, the vacuum created and the shock of seeing it collapse was, uh, is, is, is part of the components of the fall of the idea of a dictatorship and uh, now uh, to be a good dictator you have to you have to establish several things you have to show that you are indispensable you can create problems that only you can resolve you have to show that you're irreplaceable uh... you do that by basically preventing any any opposition from emerging so you, you you empty society from political except for those that serve you so you you allow islamists because you can scare the west with, with, with it uh, you also have to establish that beyond you is completely unimaginable and that it's impossible to to to, to see be, be beyond the, 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 the regime and the fall of Saddam Hussein well, played on both sides because it, it showed that the fall of the dictatorship uh, was followed by uh, civil war and a lot of violence and and, and, and all that so it, it at the same time demystified dictatorship and strengthened them uh, for, 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 for a while because uh, people thought that stability is has has a, has, a, has a premium on on uh, so so chaos, chaos, civil war, sectarianism, and all that comes when and and you see this now where uh, being being played out in uh, some of the things that uh, that that Charles spoke spoke about and some of the slogans because the dictators say that after I fall is chaos, there will be civil war, there will be sectarian sectarian killings or that so the people are marching and saying we are one we are uh, the Christians uh, uh, sh- uh, sh- uh, Sunnis and Alawis and Druze and all that and and on the other hand you have the, the, the slogans that uh, worry b- that, that raise the concern about it so one of them is uh, uh, in Hama they, they write on the wall that it's time to grind the lentils kind وقت طحن العدس is ein dal sin which is alawi durzi Sma'ili which is so 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 they're playing on the the ethnic That's I'm thinking of a way of connecting it to <laughs> the it's very good. Thank you. <laughs> so they play on the ethnicity uh, and on nationalism so so it is a play between ethnicity and nationalism on that. Is that good perfect <laughs> oh, <thank you. laughs> excellent <laughs> now Uh, to be a good dictator also you have to cement all this with an atmosphere of constant fear of people uh, looking over their shoulder worried that if they say something wrong they won't have dinner they won't get invited to dinner later (laughs) so in a sense power is a bit abstract Power, uh, power is at its strongest when you don't have to exercise it so if you've established That you're indispensable, irreplaceable, that beyond you is unimaginable and everybody is afraid and all that. You don't have to arrest people because people are so afraid. There's no opposition. And you go to these countries and you find that it's stable. People love Bashar al-Assad. They love Ben Ali. There's no, there's, uh, it's very quiet. It's, it's, uh, they're secular. They're so 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 these regimes give the wrong the wrong signals in in, in a sense because um, what how I, because obviously they were not so strong if they are collapsing uh, uh, one, 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 one after the other so so in in a sense they 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 put up a smoke screen and to prevent you from seeing beyond beyond them so now, if you look at articles on Syria, they are full of that smoke screen, that, uh, and and the, the speeches of Gaddafi, of uh, Mubarak, where that that it'll be chaos after me, it'll be it'll be uh, uh, Al Qaeda, it'll be uh, the Salafis, uh, sectarian civil war, uh, it'll be like Iraq, like Lebanon, like uh, all, all this is to prevent us from seeing beyond because the, the minute we can see beyond it be, be, beyond the, the, that the idea will, 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 will fall. And now it's difficult to predict, but I'm going to play a trick on you. Um, you see, those systems are some of them are very rigid, like this pencil, and some of them are able to bend like this pop. So, for example, in the early January, if you, if you were a policymaker or an investor who likes stability and, and security and all that, you would have thought that Egypt was the bastion of stability. That it was, it, uh, and uh, Iraq was the, the, the prototype of instability and, and risk. Whereas, in fact, it's, it's the other way around. These revolutions are making us re-evaluate what we mean by concepts like stability and risk. Uh, Egypt, because it's a rigid system, because it's unreformable, uh, doesn't bend. So, so a system that doesn't bend will, 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 can only break. So, so, so uh, whereas Iraq, because after the fall of Saddam, has developed a political system where you have Political life, where, where you have continuous crises, um, is less risky because you can see what you wh- what's happening in Iraq. You can see that there is a risk, there is a crisis, there is. So Iraq is like this bottle, where if you if it comes under pressure and has a crisis, it goes back into 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 shape, and it can, and you and you can you can see what 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 the crisis is and you can tell how much you can press before it breaks and and all that and it looks weak and all that whereas Egypt, Syria, Libya and Saudi Arabia probably are like this pencil when they come under pressure they don't move and if you look at it you you say it's very strong it's very stable and the more you know there is pressure and the more you see that doesn't move the more you think it's strong but in effect it's at the breaking point and you can never there's no symptom of of when it will it will break so in a sense Lebanon and and uh, Iraq are now the most stable countries in (laughs) in the region uh, after and uh, we don't know what's going to happen in Saudi Arabia we don't know how it's going to happen in Syria we don't know what's going to happen in We don't know if Bahrain is a bottle or a pencil. (laughs) Bahrain has has a history of crisis. And there was reconciliation at one stage. There was a political system. So so uh, so it's impossible to evaluate the the risk. Uh, Kuwait also, Kuwait could be a a bottle, I think. Uh, uh, But Saudi Arabia will snap. There's no because it's unreformable. They don't even realize that they that that they need to to to, to reform and and uh, um, <coughs> but we and we don't know how strong it is how much they can buy by 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 the, by themselves out uh, uh, on on that so so th- that's where also I think the questions that are ar- arising from this is. How do you know whether the system has reached a point of no return? Um, in, 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 and with, this is a very important, important question. What? How do policymakers know when to to tell Mubarak to leave? You you you, you saw the hesitation. They sent an envoy, and the, the 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 statements were ambiguous for a while, and then they said Mubarak has to leave. So at one at one point. There's a decision that the idea is, is gone. That there's no way you can recover from from that. Uh, that it's broken, and 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 then wh- once you decide where that point is, uh, I don't like the word tipping point. But <laughs> when you decide when you reach that point, uh, uh, it's be- it becomes a matter of time and cost. So, for example, now. Some people say that Syria hasn't reached that point, that, that basically uh, Bashar al-Assad can be a reformer, can, can, uh, and these, uh, most of the statements we see from the West are, are saying that Bashar has to reform, uh, and they are a bit ambiguous. We're at that stage where policymakers have not decided that Syria is broken. And there's a huge smoke screen about Syria in the articles in in, uh, uh, in the discussions on, 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 Sy- on Syria it's it's very very frightening <laughs> the, 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 uh, we, we cannot see beyond what will happen and we cannot understand whether he's broken or, or b- broken or not so so you have statements by uh, uh, President Obama said a weeks ago that you have to listen to him. <laughs> and and uh, 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 Margaret Ashton said, "You have to reform. Uh, you, ha- you have to reform, and we will send you help to reform." Which means they will send uh, a group of experts from Brussels who will set up shop and take six months to develop a strategy and a budget, and then develop five-year programs for reforming that. So they're, they're giving the regime a lease of life for five, six years, which none of the elected leaders in the West passed in, 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 in that sense so, so there's still a lot of ambiguity and the ambiguity is it is um, seen by, understood by the dictators as a sign of support that these tricks that the idea hasn't fallen yet that what, what I've established my power base on which is that I am irreplaceable and indispensable and and beyond me is unimaginable and there is fear and all that that has this is still working and so I still have the support and it's almost I mean in the case of Syria it's almost like a license to kill to, you know Bashar al-Assad now has the impression that uh, he has carte blanche to suppress the the uh, the, the, the revolt and, uh, and reform. There's there ha- there has not been any any uh, now. So 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 one of the important questions is uh, how how uh, how the uh, international community reacts to to to, to these uh, revol- uh, revolts and at what time do they decide to stop support and what time do they decide that there's there's no, there's no turn, turning back. On uh, there's no, you cannot, you cannot turn back. And the last thing I want to say is that what's also very, uh, it's not the last thing, basically, uh, is that when a system collapses like that, uh, when a, a lot of the components that are associated with it are also affected. So uh, what what uh, Charles was talking about and what what uh, Samuel was talking about also about uh, the the, the signs that islamism is on the it, it was not the driving force in in these in these, uh, and uh, that's probably because uh, it's, it's Islamic parties were the only parties that were allowed that that could uh, grow and and they are. In a sense the alter ego of the system so so when 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 the system collapses they lose a bit of their meaning they they, they're 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 latched to it and the best way to understand it is to think of Sheikh Karadawi who from who is was uh, kicked out of Egypt in 1981 when when uh, Mubarak came to, to power and he's been opposing Mubarak since he's been exiled in Qatar uh, uh, attacking Mubarak. He's the same age as Mubarak. He, he's, his, uh, his criticism of Mubarak get, is, is, is gets popularity because people hate Mubarak. And, and uh, uh, when Mubarak leaves, he loses some of his meaning as well because he looks like he's the same age as Mubarak he's probably as corrupt as Mubarak, because he's been <laughs> <doing> <laughs> off uh, uh, in, in the Gulf, and making a lot of money, and, uh, and all that, so, so he he's, 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 he will probably be the person who will miss Mubarak most in <laughs> Egypt, on, on, on that, because he's lost his, his meaning. And, and I, want to also, I also think that, it's too early to say, but I also think that the Arab-Israeli conflict will also have a different meaning after these revolts, because the Arab-Israeli conflict is used by the regimes to suppress the population. It's, uh, uh, y- you have emergency laws that have been there for 40 years because of the Arab-Israeli conflict. You're arrested because you're a traitor. If you criticize uh, the dictator, you're criticizing the dictator uh, uh, at, at the time when he is in conflict with Israel and with the United States. And with imperialism and, and all that, so 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 the emergency laws allow 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 the the state to put you in jail forever w- without trial and, and all that. So so the, so the something will change in our view of the Arab Israeli conflict. And uh, if I were uh, very courageous in guessing, I would say that the the youth that are the driving force of the revolution are not are not as angry as they are fed up they're probably fed up with something that's very 20th century that their fathers and grandfathers talked about and they want to move on and they, and, they, and that's why you, you don't see burning of Israeli flags and and know and, and that I mean, sure they want justice they want dignity and all that but they also want to, 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 to move on on, on on this and the last uh, thing I would say is that all this is happening and uh, the, the Arab, the Arabs have chosen a very bad time to revolt. <laughs> the, the timing uh, is is not very good because uh, they chose to revolt at a time when the the West has given up on democratization. When uh, the contrast between, two, say, 2003, the ideas that were driving policy democ- uh, in 2003, three, where where the the uh, there was an idea that. The whole region needs to reform, regimes need to change, uh, and uh, all the policy uh, programs that were being done were to change these regimes into democratic regimes. Lots of money was put into these programs. Uh, By the time uh, the Arabs decided to revolt, a lot of these programs had been cancelled. Obama uh, had decided that he's an engagementist. If uh, Saddam Hussein was still there, he would be discussing reform with Uday. And and, and so so it was engagement rather than isolation. And, and uh, uh, his, spe- his speech in Cairo was almost apologetic for, for democracy. He said, uh, last, I need to talk about democracy because I'm American and we like this thing, But don't worry, we understand your specificities and we don't impose our values. And we, so that was, that was, it's a very, so, so, so at the time when, when uh, the West had given up on, on democracy, on democracy, the, the Arabs, the Arabs it. And one of the reasons for the confusion is that it's a, it's almost part of the internal debate in uh, people like Nancy Pelosi and, and John Kerry and Senator Percy and all, and, uh, some of our very good friends from think tanks went to Damascus not so much uh, because they, they love Bashar assad but to annoy George Bush so it was, so it was part of the, the engagement was part of the <coughs> internal uh, battle between, between the uh, uh, internal politics in, in, in the States so that's part of the reason why we have so much uh, confusion and all that. so I will s- stop here
1: <laughs> excellent thank you James. thank you very much Um, I think now we have a few a few minutes of questions, so I won't miss any time. I'll just uh, turn it over to the floor. So if I go to the young man at the back there, please.
0: Yeah. My question is for all the panelists: Do we have enough elements to assert that a dictatorship that is uh, heavily supported by Western governments and because in
3: particular will collapse sooner? In other In other words, is it because both Ben Ali and Mubarak were supported by Western governments? that protests you obliged to do not want tanks and they jet bipos on their own people,
0: whereas in the cases of Syria, Libya, or Iran, uh being a pariah state gives you more uh, uh leeway to do whatever you want.
2: Oof. I think there's a there's a strong element of truth in that. The the only difference would be Bahrain where in a sense the strategic importance within that same configuration of uh, Bahrain has meant that the reaction to the appalling violence that they continue using against protesters has been very, very muted. Um, And it's not coincidental that the Fifth Fleet is there. So, but I think the point you're making is absolutely correct, certainly in terms of um, the Egyptian military establishment. But I think, again, one has to be careful that one has to think about how was the Egyptian military establishment configured in relation to President Mubarak, because people have often said that the split that you saw happening from January to February wasn't a split that occurred then. It occurred a long time before. I mean, last year there was this wonderful war of the posters in Cairo, where posters of Gamal Mubarak would be put up, and suddenly posters of Ali Suleiman would be put up. Ali Suleiman would be put on uh, around it. And it's often been said that one of the reasons why Mubarak stood again, or at least didn't confer the crown, the, the crown upon Gamal in 2005, was precisely because it had been clear that this would not be acceptable. So I think that there's an element of truth in what you say, absolutely. The notion that the Egyptian military was very concerned about how much they would lose vis-a-vis the United States, and then made the calculation that Nadim talked about, which is, so is it such a big deal getting rid of Barak? Particularly if you think that you can then rig the game thereafter, which is what they're trying to do. Tunisia was slightly different, but again, one could argue that there was a split between the army and the presidency and the presidential apparatus, which made that easier to, to concern. But I think that uh, I would take your point very much that, that there is an element of truth in that. If you are already a pariah, so what? Saddam Hussein used that for a long time. So what? You know, and, and you got away with it.
0: Well, that, I, I would concur with that. Uh, But to add that, of course, there is the element of the nature of the regime uh, that, in fact, you know, when you look at the Assad regime, uh, it is much more uh, solidary that, in fact, and based on family relations in a way in which uh, uh, Mubarak wasn't, that, in fact, you know, in the Assad regime, you have the the high military command, the security services, uh, the presidency, the whole political apparatus is all headed by uh, either family or people who, whose fate is very closely tied up with that of the, of the president, uh, which is quite different, as uh, Charles indicated, from uh, the, the much looser arrangements in the Egyptian and the Tunisian regime.
3: But there's one thing that goes against this, in that, in that the regime that's gotten the most support from the West is the Syrian regime. The, the the statements that uh, uh, it was they were very quick in the imagining which regime, sorry the Syrian
0: the
3: Syrian yeah so so the syrian regime even though it is a pariah state and anti anti-western uh, it is getting the most uh, support from the west and it's collapsed it's feared m- much more than 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 others even though egypt uh, i mean historically egypt uh is is uh, uh, leads the Arab world. If something happens in Egypt, it spreads every, everywhere. I mean, Nazarism spread everywhere. Islamic the uh, Muslim Brotherhood spread everywhere. So, so theoretically, one should be more worried about what happens in Egypt. But abandoning Mubarak took a couple of weeks, where <coughs> whereas um, they're still clinging to to uh, Assad uh, for many uh, for reasons that are difficult to explain the combination of the internal aspects and maybe they still buy the story that, that mm-hmm. after him is is, is mm-hmm. chaotic so it's very difficult to, to uh, make uh, generalizations mm-hmm. on. and in a sense it's not the, the last drop of water that uh, breaks the dam it's, it's the pebble that mm-hmm. caused the crack mm-hmm. and so the dam has been dead for a long time mm-hmm. without knowing it and
1: uh. Excellent, great. I'll just go to the young lady here, please.
4: Uh, I just want to make a, a few very quick points. Uh, one is a question, and maybe the other sort of served to confuse things a bit more. Uh, Firstly, that, that, that naturally the Tahleen was very uh, symbolic. I mean, the, 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 it was Suisse and Alexandria that fell uh first and then the, the Suez and alexandria sort of came back into Tahin mm-hmm. and that sort of gave us a sense that maybe revolutions happen on the periphery and then the capital is just a symbolic center. So probably by the time Tahin was growing strong and i had already fallen, it was just a question of which scenario we would get. Um, that's one thing. The other right. thing is it is that the Muslim Brotherhood um, Besides the fact that there are probably factions between the brotherhood itself, there is definitely a difference between how the young generation of the Muslim Brotherhood operates that were in Tahir and, and the older generation. And the young generation were part of a coalition that developed in Tahir, a coalition of the different sorts of parties or representatives. And when it came to the, um, to the referendum, for example, the stance that the coalition took was that they were they were for being against the referendum. And, and they took that stance, even though the Muslim Brotherhood viewed were for it, but because they were part of this group and the vote was was against it, they became part of that, and they stuck to the voting; they didn't pull out. of it. So that's something that's worth considering. And then finally, in right. terms of um, institutionalizing public space, there's a battle right now where, where the army not only tries to sort of physically control and uh, retract freedoms, but also re- rewrites the narrative of how this thing happened, and they're doing it through sort of saying that in the songs, etc., but also physically, through erasing the graffiti in the streets, and the graffiti artists go back down and they erase them again the next day, and so the graffiti artists try to sort of mobilize more graffiti people that go out in one day, etc. cetera. Um, and then also what they've done to Tahreel on the 12th of April, after they arrested everyone, after sort of forceful removal, next morning we woke up and suddenly the hill was green and there were blooming flowers everywhere. And, and like you go down yourself and, and you can't imagine how this space accommodates you. That's how different it looks and you actually wonder if it actually happened. And so the only hope for the institutionalization not only of, of like ha- reclaiming public space but also democracy is from below. In my belief is in the popular committees that developed on the 28th of January when the police pulled out have now politicized, and they, they, they exist on the level of communities in Cairo, but then also in government. And these are sort of questioning ideologies. What's the difference between a liberal economy and a socialist economy and a Islamist economy? And how important it is to sort of have, figure out for themselves what politics means rather than following the intellectuals. So I think so long, or like the, the way we're trying to think in Cairo, so long as we stop worrying about how things look on a structural level, um, the army will, will lead eventually, but they have to learn how to be accountable and transparent, that's what people are pushing towards, while we sort of cultivate this democracy from below. Uh, And then finally, 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 the question is how can academia be sensitive to all that? I mean, on an activist level, if we're trying to embrace Egypt, we don't know what's going to happen next, and that's a good thing. We shouldn't pretend to know, and we shouldn't try to structure things based on the history of revolutions in the world. But how can academia be like that, too? Open up questions rather than trying to analyze things and sort of set in stone what this means with all the retroactive predictions. It's important to know that when people went into Tahrir, they had no idea what would happen. They had no idea what would come and what happened was like beyond anyone's expectation, actually. But in retrospect, it's made to look like cause and effect, as social science does with revolutions all the time. Yeah. So, how to preserve the sort of unthinkability and unpredictability which could actually lead to positive results?
1: Who would not set up first?
4: <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: I do <laughs> applaud, uh, applaud the sentiments and the aspirations. Um, I'm not sure what academia can do in uh, relation to that except wishful thinking. Uh, But, uh, you know, basically, we are talking about organizations, institutions, balance of forces, uh, and so on. And, uh, you know, all the admirable uh, uh, young uh, generation who have made the revolution and about whom you're talking and developing their ideas of policy and models of development of Egypt and so on. Um, the real question is uh, uh, whether you know, what what levers of power would they be able uh, to use in implementing this uh, and to and this is what we really don't know. Can I just say
2: that the, the, the point you made about local power or local movements I think is hugely important because in a sense one of the things that many people found baffling was why Tahrir as you said it wasn't just Tahrir it happened other places but actually been happening for the last 10 years in quite unconsidered places where there wasn't a Jazeera you know you think of the number of people who died in the last 10 years in Egypt over land disputes which is the implementation of the the, the reaffirmation of private property and land. I mean, each year, 230, 250 people like that. Um, when you think of the labor unions and the movements in Mahalla and elsewhere, uh, and in a sense, what one's looking at is exactly that. It, it, very interestingly, and I think quite, in, quite significantly, there was a famous uh, French, um, or two famous French um, counter-insurgency imperialists, Lioté uh, was one of them, who uh, talked about the Tashduil, that is the, the oil spots. And their recipe for counterinsurgency, which was enthusiastically taken up by Petraeus uh, in Iraq, uh, was that if you join up the oil spots, then you have a stable place. So you've got to encourage the growth of the oil spots, the Tashduil, and then you join them up and you have a... a sti- and you could argue that one of the interesting patterns that's come out of what's happening in Egypt and to some extent what people are trying to do in Syria is the oil spots are joining up, but in a sense, insurrectionary oil spots. So in a sense, it's a different... A different notion. What can academia do about it? I think the point you made actually is very significant about the erasure of collective memory, and I think that uh, I've seen some extraordinarily interesting archives being compiled on the web and elsewhere about Tahrir, the documentation project and so on, which is in a sense to retain a notion. It seems rather retroactive, but actually it is about uh, the ensuring that the historical memory, which is, becomes an instrument for the future, isn't just in the preserve of the guardians of memory and the official public institutions which are now taken over by the army and elsewhere, that they they become much more diffuse and diversified. Uh, Whether academics have any recipes for these things, I'd be very wary about. I mean, the image of uh, a group of, uh, no doubt, um, academic bureaucrats going to Damascus and setting up shop to tell uh, Syria how to reform, it's as bizarre as when Tony Blair decided that one of the problems in Basra was the problem of local policing. So he got people from British police stations, uh, and he put an officer in each local police station in Basra, and of course mayhem ensued. But you know, one couldn't not only they didn't speak the language, they didn't know. But you imagine if you if you took police officers from Derbyshire and put them in the Met, you know, they'd be isolated, boycotted. They wouldn't have a first idea what's going on. So again, I think we have to be very, very modest and cautious about that. But the notion of the what academics can do in terms of complicating historical memory seems to be extraordinarily important.
3: Um, There's one thing, I I mean, Eugene's thesis was about Mm. the the rural origin of... That's right, yeah. 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 But that's a very interesting uh, concept. But there's, uh, just from my experience in the last week, I can can tell you, I was in Eastern Europe, I was in Sofia, and the experience, it was about the experience of Eastern Europe in in transition. And when I spoke about the the line the 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 line that if if it's crossed then there's no there's no turning back and how to evaluate it East Europeans understood it immediately I didn't have to explain it that that once once you once you mentally break away from the idea of the dictatorship then there is no there's no way, way back they they instinctively understood it even though they don't know the facts so it's a difference between uh, information and understanding they they understood it but they don't know they don't have the, the information whereas when i speak to uh, uh americans or, or or westerners who have no clue what it is to live under saddam or or under uh, 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 Bashar al-Assad, or the, I think they, they they this line, the crossing of this line is much more difficult to to, to 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 explain to them, and in Eastern Europe, I think academics can help a lot because uh, uh, there there, w- there were discussions about their experiences and how they compare, and the lessons learned were are, are very useful. Uh, I mean, they the, I was with the. Prime Minister of Bulgaria, who was a Prime Minister in 91, and uh, he was having a discussion with the Tunisians, and uh, with the Tunisian, it was fascinating because 91 Bulgaria had 70 or 80 parties that were developing after the collapse of the... Mm. and uh, they had no strategy, they, they had no communication, they, they, they didn't know what they were doing, it was complete chaos, and five years later the ancien regime came back stronger and then they had to redo the revolt again and get rid of it and then it comes back same thing happened in ukraine uh the the the, the uh i keep i can't pronounce his name but hmm. they they got rid of him in 2005 and he came back in 2010 and and uh, so so th- so th- I, I academics can help uh I, I think you should you should get th- th- there's a way a, a there are lessons to be learned from, from other experiences.
0: But in, in the case of Bulgaria, how to avoid mafia rule? Mafia <laughs> <laughs> rule, <laughs> yes. Let's oh, go to
1: uh, the lady here, please. Yes, and uh, uh,
3: maybe
1: a comment link to a question. I think academia has a big job to do here. Does it know Can't hear, sorry.
0: Who has a big job? Academia has a picture of her. Does it not
1: uh, have to do with the way we think the revolution, uh, like to break this chain of cause and effect? And I was wondering, uh, through all the three talks actually, resonated a vocabulary that
0: was solely based on, on the Western European experience of revolution. Oh, I heard that before. And you were arguing
1: almost from a split that already assumes politics is separate from the victim, from or assumes the separation between the victims and you just discussed uh, uh, or uh, mentioned public space. Where were the mosques? The mosques, uh, from what I saw, played a big role as, as a social institution in this revolution, as the prayer, for instance, in the confronting weapons. Um, so, so I think we have a big job to do in, in how we approach or grasp the emergence of these phenomena, but also in the context through which we think. Of.
4: I, can it. I
0: just put a plug in for my recent book, which is entitled Beyond Islam? I think you should read it, and you'll find out.
2: Well, there's, there's two ways in which the, the mosque becomes important in, in the Egyptian case, particularly in terms of public space. One was the notion of the mosque as an assembly point where people would debauch and therefore create, in a sense, the occupation of a non-religious public space. It wasn't actually happening inside the mosque. But the other interesting use of the mosque was as a clinic you know, as a field station, as a hospital, where anybody could go. So in a sense, it became a public building that one could protect, and to some extent in Dara, uh, the same thing. So there is a notion in which you could argue that the religious specificity of the mosque becomes irrelevant in such a a, a case. And I wouldn't at all say that um, uh, the notion of religion and politics is separate. It's part of the fabric of it. And I I think one talks about one's own Uh, history as well here so I think that in that sense public space is what I was trying to get across is public space is the places the spaces that have been occupied by the regime in the name of the public but not actually occupied by the public and so what you see is a new public emerging Mm -hmm. now the question becomes thereafter quite interestingly is does the mosque then revert to being uh, an exclusive kind of space, no longer a public space for all Egyptians, but actually a space for certain kinds of Egyptians. And that's certainly the case in Iraq. Shia Mosque, Sunni Mosque, whatever Mosque. So there's a sense in which the, uh, you know, the burning of the church in Cairo, of course, it came from very local notions, but it, it depressed a lot of people. There were Muslims trying to defend that church and there were Muslims trying to burn it down. In that sense, what one has to sense is that the religious affiliation of the people involved is less important than what the politics of it was about. And the Mm -hmm. politics was much more about the kinds of things that Sami was talking about. Authenticity, identity, fears for insecurity, as well as ideologues of one form or another. So I uh, I wouldn't make that clear division either between religion and politics or between, as it were, a public space and a religious space. What's interesting is what use is it being put to and what, does it become, what part of n- a narrative does it become involved in?
3: Uh, I think I will read the uh, Sami's book too. <laughs> 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 well, uh,
1: uh, uh, Excuse me. Just uh, no,
3: sorry, we, uh, uh, we really
1: have to finish. We've <laughs> run out of time, <laughs> just unfortunately. Just one so. very brief question, because I, I, I don't know about it. Uh, so far as uh, British establishments response to series and so uh, I think I'd like to know what is the role played by Mr. Wahid Said. Mr. and Mrs. Patrick
3: Seal in the media or anywhere else, if you know. I, if for what? In interpreting this Syrian situation to the British well, government. Well, P- Patrick and, and Rana have completely different <laughs> views. <laughs> <laughs> so they cancel Seale, each other, yes. In,
1: in the previous occasion, Patrick Seal used to interpret the Syrian situation in the British media. Yeah. And Mr. Wafik's side has, I believe, quite a, a bit of pull with the present British government.
2: I don't know. I mean, I know that he's, a, he's a, um, regarded as a benefactor. This is not probably, LSE Maybe not the place to talk about Middle Eastern benefactors. <laughs> I thought I was going to try and avoid this particular topic, but uh, or certainly... Or North African, African, or, or
0: African ones.
2: <laughs> but there is a, there is a, a, a tendency, as you, as you quite rightly say, that uh, one of the features that one always has to be wary of is uh, the turjuman. you know, the, the, yeah. the dragaman, the, the person who interprets. Because they come from the area, they interpret the area for you. And that led, so I'm not saying one particular person or anything, but it does let yourself open to some very bizarre understandings. You think about how America was informed about Iraq through Chelebi and other reliable characters who had their finger on the pulse of Iraq itself. Well, equally, there are people with their own access to grind. So I think that that happens everywhere. But the, the point be made, I suppose, is actually the point made by a colleague on, the, on your right, which is that if the only people that any of our governments listen to are the people that they recognize or authoritative because they look like them, in a sense, because they're plugged into the connections, then they're they're going completely wrong. In a sense, the people who understand it are the people who understand local politics and things. And there's a very clear example of that in uh, a rather confessional memoir of uh, the late Sir Anthony Parsons, who was the British ambassador in Tehran uh, during the revolution. And he wrote this sort of mea culpa book afterwards uh, in which he said one of our problems was that we were always speaking to the wrong people. So, you know, if you look at our diplomatic correspondence, it's I had a word with General So-and-so the other day and he assured me it's fine. You know, I had a word with, you know, chief commissioner of police. He said, Tom, what do you expect? They're madmen, you know, it'll die down, don't worry. And he said, we went on listening to that. We went on believing that, because we wanted to believe it. We wanted to believe that the military held the key. But that's because. Exactly, they couldn't tell. In other words, the woodworm had got inside the pencil. (laughs) But they didn't recognize the woodworm, they only recognized the pencil.
3: (laughs) But uh, Even for this, for what's happening now, we we had the same the same symptom i mean uh, uh, like john alterman <laughs> uh, s- said a few years ago that you should uh f- forget about the 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 uh the people who are westernized and who can use twitter and facebook and uh, who y- you, who understand you and you can have a nice conversation with and dinner with you should you should be y- we should talk to the less palatable uh people in society like the Islamists and those who hate us and and all that and it is not it is it is exactly those liberals who who were at the forefront of the revolt not Mm. not the less palatable I mean it was at the time it was like a Groucho Marx uh, syndrome it was that you should not belong to a club that would have you as a member (laughs) so you don't talk to the people who who accept you you talk to the people Mm. who reject you and, and it was a complete miscalculation. Mm-hmm.
0: On, on mm-hmm. Uh, well, it was Ken Givingstone who spoke yeah. to Carl Dawid. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but
3: just despite, uh, despite Blair. <laughs> um, unfortunately,
1: we've run out of time, so we're going to have to wrap up there. Well, Unfortunately for the attendees, but fortunately for the speakers. Um, I would like to thank our speakers again. It's been a real privilege to listen to what I've got to say at such an important time. So thank you very much. Thanks for coming. And uh, for those of you that are interested, our next event is on the thirty-first of May in the same venue, and it's um, the twenty-first century as the age of, na- of the nation state. And another statue. You don't know the statue. It's the one outside the UN. Swords into mm. plowshare. Plow- mm. So, um, and it's by Professor Avio Rochewald from Georgetown University, and chaired by Eric Kaufman from um, Birkbeck. So, it'll be a very, very interesting talk, and it's the final seminar of the year. So, please come along. So, thank you very, very much. much. Sure. Thanks, Thanks for coming.